Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain here for the No Film School podcast, the week of July 3rd, 2020, COVID, week 16. I am here with Michelle De La Tour. Hi everyone. Editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hey everybody. We're going to be talking about the one thing that is absolutely banned from every Chris Nolan film set. We're going to be talking about a brand new category of people that are now voting on the Oscars and whether or not that's a good idea. We're going to be talking about a whole new format that the Fuji GFX100 is going to shoot that I personally am very excited about. We've got all that and an Ask No Film School that dates back to before World War I this week on the No Film School podcast. Our top story this week is about Chris Nolan and some news that came out about Chris Nolan's film sets. And it, it falls into the category of, of management advice. And it is one of those things you hear. And it's entirely possible it's true. It's also entirely possible it's not true. So apparently, Chris Nolan has banned this essential item from his sets. He says, no one is allowed to have a chair on his film set. Which is bold. And the story, the story we're reporting on or aggregating about on this, uh, it's it's an, an interview Anne Hathaway was doing with Hugh Jackman, where she said that this was his rule. So this was according to Anne Hathaway, who has been in a couple of Chris Nolan movies, right? So yes. should have some. Although in in defense of this particular bit of knowledge, if I remember in Interstellar, a lot of it she was on that water world, and I don't even know where you would put a chair. In the water world. So it's entirely possible, like in other sets, he might look. I get it, right? Everybody has walked on a film set. In, if you've ever visited a big film set, you look around and it seems like 85% of the people are doing nothing, right? That's not actually true, but hurry up and wait is a cliche of the film industry. Stanley Kubrick famously loved to play chess while he was waiting on things to happen. And one of the things that happens on any job where there's a wide variety of specialties going on is one department will work for a while and then they'll sit and another department will work for a while and then they'll sit. And so there's a there's a frustration many filmmakers have where you look around at a set and you're like, what is everybody doing? The sun is setting. I need to get this shot. Everybody should be going. We should be doing stuff. So I, I understand the instinct of like, if I take away the chairs, everyone will be standing. And, and, you know, like the standing desk trend has been a big trend for the last 10 years. So people are like, oh, you're more active when you're standing. And, you know, I, I went so far as I've had a treadmill desk for about a decade mm-hmm. now, and I'm a big fan of that. And so look, I, I get the instinct. I personally suspect that this is an exaggeration because I'm pretty sure the unions would throw a fit. Obviously, there are makeup chairs so that people can sit while they're making. I think there are some chairs in the sets themselves because sometimes in his movies, people are sitting. I have seen multiple people sit in his movies. Even Batman sat down at that restaurant with those two young ladies. We also have some proof that we put also in our post about this that of, you know, behind the sets photos of human beings sitting in chairs that aren't you know characters in the movie so there are people sitting down in chairs on christopher nolan sets um there's visual proof but there may be some version of this rule that he has that has to do with productivity and people staying active and i have a different theory actually back in the day when you shot on film you had a terrible image in your video tap and so, you know, you had like a standard definition image and it was running out to a shitty black and white clamshell TV. And so this 
This thing that we think of now as an essential part of the film set is a thing called Video Village. So I'm out on like a 4K shoot today. And I have a 4K 65-inch TV, and it's big and it's beautiful, and there's like 12 chairs in front of it, and everybody has their name on a chair. And it's this little seating area, and there's snacks, and it's video village, and it's this like it's this place energy goes to die. In the 90s, we didn't have that. When you were shooting on film back in the day, like even on relatively bigger productions, video village might be a thing, but it wasn't the same thing. And so my suspicion is that what Anna Hathaway is actually talking about because Nolan shoots film and because Nolan works the old fashioned way is that like when you get your makeup done, you still sit in a chair. I'm sure there's still chairs at the lunch tables. I'm sure there's still chairs at crafty, but this big elaborate, like 15 feet from set, everybody has an assigned chair. We're all staring at a monitor sitting together. That thing is probably just not part of Chris Nolan set because I suspect that Chris Nolan likes to focus the energy around the camera, right? And yes, obviously you can get an HD video tap for some of these cameras and I'm sure there's some video village somewhere, but my guess is that it's more about set layouts. Like I still try and work this way. What I always do is I make sure my video village is as far away from set as physically possible, as far away from set as I can. So I have a big 50 inch monitor and it's on a cart and it'll be 30 feet from set, 50 feet from set, a hundred feet from set. It'll be in another room and I make sure the good food is there. And that's super far away so that the actors and I and the DP and the key creatives and the people who want to talk about it in the production designer, we can all be around set and there's no chairs there other than like, you know, any chairs that would be in the scene. There's, the, there's not this big like cocktail party chair seating arrangement. And you walk onto a lot of modern sets now and you see it and it's crazy to think about that transition. So that is my guess. My guess is that Chris Nolan is not a video village hound is my suspicion is what this anecdote is about. Anne Hathaway's quote was, he doesn't allow chairs, and his reasoning is, if you have chairs, people will sit, and if they're sitting, they're not working. That may not be an exact quote. I immediately have a negative reaction to the thought of, of a set where there's a director who's saying, hey, all you grips, and like you said, I'm sure you're not even allowed to do that. No chairs. <laughs> I want to make sure that none of the guys who should be lugging sandbags take any breaks. And I guess I'm emphasizing this point not because I think Christopher Nolan does it, but because I worry that there's going to be a filmmaker out there who takes something like this or even doesn't read this and just has this thought of like, well, on my set, no one's ever going to rest. If I see somebody, it's like, no, that's not going to help. Like everybody has different needs and requirements and works better under different circumstances. And the best thing you can do is probably figure out what maximizes their potential and not try to just insert some big rule that has to apply to everyone equally about how they take their breaks. I mean, it is also fundamentally ableist, if true. Exactly. Like I know plenty of people, you know, more in post than in production, but I know plenty of people who work in wheelchairs or with crutches. And like, now that is more common in post than it is in production, but production and post are merging. If you're, you know, again, Chris Nolan doesn't shoot digitally, so he doesn't have a DIT. A, a DIT on a digital set traditionally sits for much of the day, but sound recordists often sit. And I certainly know people who've worked in those positions with a variety of experiences. So saying if you're sitting, you're not working really implies that a lot of people who sit to work aren't working, which he can't possibly really mean because these days that's how almost everybody works. I'm not even saying it's a preferred method of working, but it's, it's like, I don't think like it's, yeah, I just, it's not fathomable to me that he means that. 
Yeah, this reminds me of how many people, how many creatives we've inadvertently left out of this industry just based on our physical requirements, right? You see in the in a lot of job listings when you're looking for videographers, it says you have to be able to lift 30 pounds, you have to carry things on your shoulder, you have to be able to walk, you know, to and from set. I often think about that. I don't think a lot of sets are accessible. And I don't know if we've made they're probably adapters and things to to help people do this work. I would love to figure out the ways that we can be more inclusive in those designs, both on both on set, but also with the creative services, right? In terms of what cameras are we using? How are we doing that? Can we make this work? Like that, it just feels like we've inadvertently left out a good subset of the population to come into this industry because of the way that we've set it up. I have a friend. I'm not going to say his name, although I think he said this anecdote in interviews. But he now works in like uh, the lighting design industry. But he used to, you know, his original ambition was to be a DP and then he hurt his back. And, you know, whenever anyone asks him about it, he's like, fundamentally, being a DP is kind of like being an NBA player in that you have to have natural talent and you have to not get hurt. And like, there are so many potential uh, Kobe's and LeBron's out there who just got hurt somewhere along the way. And we never like got to see them. And like, who knows what DP my buddy would have been, but he hurt his back and that was it. Because he was still at a stage in his career where he would have been operating from – like there was no way to keep leveling up, right? Like obviously if Hoyt von Hoytema sprains his ankle, he's going to be able to keep working and work with a good operator and be fine. But it's about the climb. It's about trying to get there. And it's very hard to, to level up depending upon where you are already without some physical ability. And it is a thing that I think about a lot, especially as we look at things like the move to virtual production and the ability to do things in CineTracer and Unreal that are cinematography, are blocking a scene, are telling the story with images, but don't necessarily require the same physical demands. What's actually effective work? Like there's been a huge amount of discussion on my Facebook feed lately about, you know, all of these COVID restrictions are like, oh, eight hour days or some places are 10 hour days. And there've been so many people who've been like, oh, I'm so excited to be back to this. And yet half of my Facebook feed is still like, nah, man, I miss those 18 hour days. I was always so proud when we wrapped and I always felt like it was like such a like badge of honor that we did all that. And I'm like, really? Did we do that many good shots after hour 14 or so? Like, I'm excited about 10 hour days. Like I would rather shoot 10 hour days and an extra three days at the end of the schedule because it never felt like we were doing good work after hour 14 or 15. And, you know, there's there's all of these ideas we have about what makes good work. And I think we are now in an opportunity to reevaluate a lot of them. And like, how many hours we spend on set? What are we doing in those hours? How hard are we going? Like, because I think there is a way to like, work smarter and make good movies. Personally. Yeah. There's a romance to the all nighter and the, you know, 18 yeah. hour days and the endless shoots. And, but there's also a lot of misery. And those are when the really bad things happen on sets. Careers are ruined, like over shoots where people take advantage of that. And it's just, it's a silly thing to romanticize. In the, on the good column for Christopher Nolan, I have heard, I have on good authority that he makes an effort to actually keep his days pretty short. And he likes to shoot local in LA where he lives so he can go home at night and treat it like a normal job. So whatever maybe he believes about chairs and resting, I have a I have I believe he's he's pretty reasonable about days and hours. Oh, he famously still shoots a 10-hour day. And uh I have friends who 
like their kids were in the same middle school or something as Chris Nolan. And they were always amazed that like he would be at all of the weekend stuff every weekend. I hope I'm not ruining anyone's privacy. This was 10 years ago, but like every weekend he would be at all the stuff with the kids, even when he was in the middle of shooting a movie. So like, it's also weird that this is a Chris Nolan anecdote because it actually doesn't jive with any of the other. I'm going to circle back to saying it's just about Chris Nolan not having video village and it, and, and it's still good. And it's a good anecdote about Chris Nolan, not Chris Nolan is a horrible taskmaster who wanders the set being like, I see you're sitting, get back to work. We're going to dock your pay. He pulls Apple boxes out from under people. Oh my God. Yes. By the handle. Just, (laughs) but it is, even if it's not, true, it still made us think about the implications of what that means, right? We're still sitting here thinking, well, yeah, like this should change or do you know what I mean? Even if it's not true, I'm still thinking about, do you guys remember NAB where they had that like section of the floor where it was devoted to spine and shoulder injuries? Um, (laughs) That's what makes me think of. And it makes me think of when I was in grad school, I never thought of this as weird until just now I'm realizing there's a lot of privilege in saying that, but I, I very distinctly remember the dean of the school or the dean of our program. I was in a journalism program and a lot of folks were new to picking up a camera or to, fi- you know, carrying it around, carrying that stuff around the city. And she suggests, she suggested we go to the gym and train with the weights that were equivalent to the camera. And I always, I never thought that was weird till now that that was the expectation that this part, you know, this work required you to be mobile and physically able to do it. And, and, News is is very very rooted in that, like being able to pick up your stuff and go. But uh, we've left. I, I feel like we've left some people behind. Like I feel like that didn't wasn't inclusive enough. That there are people that want to do this work that can't do that for for a variety of reasons, or just don't. Like I worry about that. So moving on to a job we know can be done from a chair. The Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences are now going to be adding agents to the voters for the Oscars. Good transition, bad transition, medium transition. I thought it was pretty solid. I was pretty proud of that one. I think that's pretty good. Agents, if you know, we talk about agents a lot, we've talked about agents a lot in the um, their fight with the writers earlier this year and last year. Basically, an agent is out there representing a writer or director or a performer in a negotiation or cinematographers below the line uh, often have agents as well in their negotiations. So when they are arguing with um, studios over money and length of days and all that and stuff, you know, the actor doesn't want to fight with the studio boss about it. They have their agent fight with the studio boss about it and the agent takes a fee in exchange. So agents have always been part of the um, Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences. That's not a new thing, but their uh, status is getting changed from associates to members. Um, It's not actually 100% correct, but it's something like that. And now they're going to get to vote on the Academy Awards. Uh, People are widely saying this is a terrible idea. And the reason why it's a terrible idea. I mean, it is a terrible idea. Yeah, Yeah. You're saying it because it is. Oh my God. It's (laughs) it's an awful idea. Here's the thing. It's an awful idea. That's also indicative of why the agents are getting in a fight with the writers. So basically the argument people are making is, is like agents are taking a larger and larger part in the creation of these movies because they're doing packaging and they're doing all these other things. So of course they should be able to vote. And it's like, come on guys. First off, they shouldn't be doing that. Secondly, by definition, they are going to vote 
for themselves and the clients of their agency. Like that's what they're going to do. Simultaneous to that, the Academy also announced their new members this year. For the first time ever, I know one of them on my Facebook feed. Somebody was like, I just found out I was invited to join, which is like, you know, now I'm in the circle where I know people getting invited. Um, Although it's not someone I've ever worked with. It's someone I went to college with. But uh, a whole bunch of good people have been invited to join, including Aquafina, John David Robinson, uh, a dozen people from Parasite were invited to join. Um, so it's an exciting time. Director Bong Joon-ho had already been invited to join, but actors and costume designers from Parasite are all now invited to be members. So I don't, th- I mean, is there a single good reason why the a- agents should get to vote on the Academy Awards? There's, there's a couple things that are, there's a lot of obvious jokes. I mean, we'll start with that. Like everybody makes fun of agents. A lot of people just flat out don't like agents. And even if that's, even if that's not fair and there's, there's good people who are agents, um, that exist in the world, it's still the, the stereotype and the frustration with the role they play and, and oftentimes with their relationship to the art of what, what it is we all do is more like through the parts that are the business. So they're not a savory part of this machine, fair or not, but they're a necessary part. But I think that there's just one really obvious reason this is a terrible idea, which is they're going to have an obvious bias, which is something Michelle and I were talking about offline (laughs) just when this news dropped. With lots Um, of exclamation marks. (laughs) It's like- Vote right. They're gonna they're gonna vote for their clients. Like and and that's because that's how they're gonna make more money. And you could say like, well, won't people always vote for the things that that, that they're in and, and stuff like that? But I think it's a little different when you get to the agent level because a lot of agent there's there are, there are only so many big agencies. There are tons and tons of movies every year, far more movies than there are agencies. So you're going to get these big swaths of people, agents who work at, say, a CAA, Mm -hmm. all voting for the big CAA movie. It's going to change how they strategize. And all of these complaints that I'm airing right now are related to the idea or connect to the notion of whether or not you think the Oscars, the Academy Awards, and what wins matters in some tangible way anyway. I mean, to me personally, it doesn't. But in terms of dollars, it does. In terms of of visibility, it does. This is, the Oscars are first and foremost, a television event. They are a big PR thing. They get um, talent in front of the camera who may be promoting movies to come out in the future of that year. Keep an eye on that if you've never thought about it before. It's always presenters are almost always connected to stuff that they're pushing that they want you to see because they've got stuff coming up. Um, and it's a huge notch on any performer or anybody in the industry, any craftsperson's resume and everybody associated with them. I guess the only nice thing about I was going to make a joke about how everybody always says I want like to thank my agent. And I was like, maybe they won't have to, but no, they're going to have to thank them even more, right? Because I want to thank my agent for voting for me this time. Um, I, I don't like. I just to me the whole thing is silly. The whole thing being the Oscars, but this just adds a layer to the silliness. There's only I just thought about this. There's maybe only one way that I just reflected on that this could be helpful. But if agents are recommitting themselves to gathering more diverse clients and work 
could they then, if let's say that they're, they're, they're great, they're now a member of the or a voting member of the academy, and can they leverage that in some way to increase the diversity of the body or diverse diversify the works that they're working on, and in turn diversify the academy in general? Like, is there a way to leverage their newfound status to achieve diversity at all? No, I mean, I think you, I, <laughs> no, I think it's an excellent silver lining to to try and see. It could, I mean, I maybe possibly. But on the flip side, is that the is that the easiest way they could no. achieve diversity? No, they could not. Just, no, <laughs> I couldn't figure out the problem they were trying to solve. Like, if the problem is, like, do you know what I mean? If the problem was, we don't have enough uh, creatives tell- in our in our sphere. Like, I think. Really, what I'm saying is, I think the problem I would be trying to solve for is different than the problem that they're trying to solve for right now. I and, would bet that's true, yes. And so, <laughs> if it were me, you know, we've talked about the categories I would have added, we would have added to the academy, um, et cetera, et cetera. And how, and I've ex- explained how I think the shortlisting could work to increase diversity as a whole. But so, my hope was maybe if this is happening, which it sounds like it is, we could leverage it for some of those goals. But, Charles, please explain. I mean, the problem they're trying to solve is agents have been whining about this for as long as there's been Academy Awards. As long as they've been like, this is just something for agents to complain about. And look, I'm not anti-agent or anti-lawyer. I'm a big fan of my lawyer. Every lawyer I've worked with and many agents I've worked with, I've had agents like literally triple offers. Like I had an offer and then an hour later, I was being offered three times as much. I love representation when representation is doing what representation is supposed to do. Everybody in LA knows everybody else. Everybody in the Academy Awards knows a ton of agents. Agents have been kvetching about this for a while. And you know, whether they decided to sneak it in because of COVID or whatever, like this is <laughs> strikes me more as like the Academy relenting to pressure it. than it does the Academy making a strategic decision that's going to make it any more fair personally. I'm also annoyed that they combined editing and sounds. Oh, yeah, yes. that's a bigger uh, affront to the craft, if I may get a little highfalutin for a moment. But I I would say that's a good answer. I was going to say, I think it's just because, like I said, I think the Oscars are more about PR and about generating interest and momentum for a television event than anything else. And I think agents make a lot of sense as a vital cog in that machine. And that, it, it, and that on some level, it makes more sense to have agents as a large voting body when you want the movies winning and being recognized to be the ones that are going to drive ticket sales and drive attention and, and not necessarily ones that are, you know, really good, interesting movies made in a foreign language. No movies being mentioned here. But like, but I would also just, you know, I, you make a good point. Both of you do. And I want to say, Saying it, sneaking it in with COVID reminds me of, uh, I'm going to use a sport, a sort of a sports metaphor here. So some people will have to bear with me, but they're trying to bring sports back right now. And as they're trying to bring baseball back, which I doubt will actually work, they have snuck in a couple of really weird rule changes. And I saw one of them and it was like an extra innings, the runners will start on second base or something. And it's like, it's so not a good idea. 
but it's clearly something they've been wanting to do. And they were trying to like slip it in there when they're like, well, as long as we're doing this weird, like attempted reboot thing, let's just throw that rule out there that we think is going to help like with the profit margin that, that we we're all aching for, but we know the purists won't like. And I feel like it's exactly like that. It's just like, we see an obvious business win here. Um, and we just feel like it's going to come under fire. But as long as everything's like upside down and people just want to see baseball, why not? Why not try it? That's what I think it is too. I think that was an effort to make games shorter. Yes, totally. And, and I they've think that- been trying to figure out a way to do that for a long time in the minor leagues, right? So they've been testing things out and maybe it was just like, you're right. Like if we're going to make an announcement, now let's make this other announcement. Yeah, you won't even notice. Time. You won't even notice they're trying to make games shorter because we yeah, want exactly. people to watch the whole thing and, and we're worried about viewers and like, because I understand all the motivations, just like I would say with agents, I understand all the motivations. I just think that it it upsets what a lot of people expect out of the event. And it, it, like Charles said, I think that, that it's like a COVID sneak. We should, we should uh, trademark that. It's a COVID sneak. They're trying to get one in there because they think we're just all so desperate for, for baseball or, or Oscars or anything. Our next news is who is someone who would never have snuck anything by you in COVID. Uh, we unfortunately uh, have to discuss the passing of the wonderful Carl Reiner. I think he was 98, which is a very long, good life. And he definitely had quite a life. Um, and if for younger people who are less familiar with him, Carl Reiner was just a genius comedic talent. He started as a writer on something called The Show of Shows with a with the headlining guy, Sid Caesar. This was like 1950s television. But the other people in that writer's room included... Woody Allen, uh, Mel Brooks, um, Neil Simon, just to name a few. It was like a hotbed of, of great talent that would be coming in many different forms later. He created The Dick Van Dyke Show, which was one of the most important classic sitcoms and endures and influenced television talent to this day. Um, his son is Rob Reiner, who many people our age and, and, and around our age will be more familiar with, um, obviously. But he continued. He starred in Ocean's Eleven. He was great in it. He directed The Jerk with Steve Martin, which is amazing. And he did a ton of comedy with Mel Brooks as their partnership was lifelong. Their friendship lasted to the end. And I actually met him once because I went to a double feature of his movies at the Arrow Theater in, in Los Angeles. And he was like in his 90s. It wasn't that long ago. And he stuck around. He introduced the movies and he sat there and watched them. And I talked to him briefly afterwards. He's the, he was the nicest man. And everybody who's eulogizing him today, comics from all around the industry, um, talk about his influence on them, but also that he was just the nicest, kindest person. And to me, it's it's worth mentioning because being successful and having power in the industry doesn't mean you need to be difficult or a jerk. It, you can actually do that, all of that and be an incredibly gracious, kind people person and leave behind that legacy. And it's powerful when someone like that passes, I think, because people who didn't even know them feel this feel that positivity about them. So I wanted to mark the moment and remind people that this was a guy who had a tremendous influence on all the things we watch today, certainly. Little known fact about Carl Reiner, he had padded folding chairs on his sets. 
<laughs> he might have. Actually, he would have had – for him, the gag was just the guy trips over the chair because that was the Dick Van Dyke thing. But yes, good. another good way to weave in chairs. He totally would have let people sit on set, I think. Totally. Up next, moving on to tech news. Fujifilm and Hasselblad are in sort of a friendly competition for medium format videography. What do we mean about medium format videography? So, you know, we've obviously in cinematography been going through a big sensor bump in the last couple of years from super 35 millimeter sensors, which are like roughly 18 millimeters by 24 millimeters to these new full frame sensors, which are around 24 by 36 millimeters. So they're significantly bigger and a bigger sensor gives you better low light performance, lower noise and different imaging characteristics because you're using different lenses to get the same field of view so things feel differently. The next bump up from that is medium format. Medium format sensors are even bigger than full frame sensors. There's a wide variety of sensor sizes once you get into medium format, but you know something like a 45 millimeter image circle or bigger like you're you're getting into these big sensor sizes and traditionally we didn't see a lot of medium format use in motion pictures. Even the big motion picture formats like 70 millimeter aren't quite as big as the formats you see in medium format. 70 IMAX is. IMAX is like getting closer to that negative size. Um, and we never really had a like large format is like eight by 10 negatives. We never really had a motion picture format in that space. Um, Hasselblad and Fuji both make digital cameras, digital medium format cans cameras, big sensors. They actually both use Sony sensors and uh, they're both rolling out new features in the space. We talked a couple weeks ago about Hasselblad. Fuji has a camera, the GFX 100. It shoots 4K video. It shoots 4K video internal. It has PDAF, which is phase detect autofocus. That's something that's a really big deal in medium format because the depth of field gets really small as the sensor gets that big. And so even though you're getting these beautiful images out of it, if you can't keep them in focus, they're not going to be useful to you. And so it really becomes a big deal. But they just rolled out a feature that is a real crusher. Uh, and that is you can now record with this GFX 100 to ProRes RAW. Now, you have to use an external recorder. It's not going to go internally to the SD or CFast cards or whatever it has internal um, because that's just going to be too much data for any internal card. But if you're going out to externally to an Atomos Ninja or I imagine a Shogun eventually, it only says Ninja in the release, but if they're putting it in the Ninja, they'll eventually have to put it in the Shogun too. This external monitor recorder, you stick a hard drive in it, you, and over HDMI, you're going to get raw signal out that can then be recorded to ProRes RAW. So this is the first time we're really seeing like a, oh, there's a, it is a 44 by 32 millimeter image sensor. So it is a whopping big image sensor. And this is the first time we're seeing such a big image sensor in the field. It's an under $10,000 camera body and you can shoot raw with it. If you guys remember about 10 years ago, Red laid out this whole roadmap of all these crazy cameras they were going to build that were all going to shoot Red Raw. We didn't see a lot of them. I liked that they laid out a roadmap with a lot of crazy stuff in it. I like that Red does that. But the closest they got was the Monstro sensor, which is a little bigger than full frame, but certainly not 43.8 by 32.9. So this is sort of like the biggest sensor out there that shoots to a raw format. We've done some field tests on ProRes Raw in the past. ProRes RAW is a, a legit improvement over ProRes. You get nice playback speed, but you also get a little bit more color grading potential, a little bit more flexibility in that color grade than you would if you shot to normal ProRes. So a thousand bucks for a Ninja 5, $10,000 for a body, and you're able to shoot RAW video 
off a full frame sensor. You're probably going to have some rolling shutter artifacts if you go handheld. This is definitely more of a like stabilizer, dolly kind of camera setup. But, um, you know, there's a bunch of video out there that people have been shooting with this and it's super, it's super beautiful already, not even shooting to raw. And I think the raw thing is going to open up a lot of really cool workflow for people. I am curious to know uh, about this, where, um, like where you see it fitting into what, what kind of person is the target for this in this situation and where in their work, you know, in their kit, in their collection of gear. I don't think we're yet at the point where you're going to start seeing a lot of indie features shot on it. That used to be the hallmark for everybody. It's like, oh, well, when it's feature ready, then we know it's good. So like, this is something that like, if I, I don't shoot stills, but if I was a stills photographer and I shot something like a fashion campaign, I would totally then use this for the additional video assets that you turn over because nowadays almost everything you do when you shoot stills, you're also turning over some video assets. If I shot a fashion lookbook, I would also then switch over to video mode all the time and get an additional video. I would say that this is really going to fall into the like high-end branded content, high-end, you know, like if you are a filmmaker and you just booked like, you know, oh, I get to do, you know, like a my first ever $20,000 commercial for like a local coffee brand or whatever. This is the kind of thing that might land on it where the image is what matters above all. And you're going to be able to really craft it and pay attention to it. And, and all of the drawbacks of medium format, the tiny depth of field aren't going to be a problem. I wouldn't shoot an indie feature on it just because the depth of field is going to be so small for so many shots that every time an actor misses a mark by a centimeter, they're going to be out of focus. And that's just going to slow you down too much on an indie feature. But the imagery will be really nice with that big old whopping sensor. You'll be able to shoot like really beautiful stuff. So this is really going to attract people who are working in like a pure image quality space where that is the thing that matters way more than other stuff, which isn't every job, to be honest. I'm curious if we think that this addition for this camera will affect anything further down the line in the lower price points. So the X-T4 is very popular. I think we could see it in the X-T4. And there's a lot of rumors about an X-H2, which will be the X-H is the more video focused of their camera line. There's a lot of rumors that the X-H2 is coming. Fuji keeps saying like that isn't a deadline, even though it's been a while since there's been an update. And I think it's practically guaranteed that if there is an XH2, it'll have this. And you know what? Honestly, they could roll it out to the XT4 and that would be killer. There, There's a place for that, right? There's, there's a place for that combined stills video camera that does it all. And it'd be interesting for them to enter that space in a way I'm not sure anyone predicted. I was the lone weirdo who was like, no, but the color is so great. Um, Cause legitimately the color reproduction is so great. I think you're right. Honestly, I, I think the, the implications for the lower end of the line and XT4 and an XH2 that let you do ProRes raw, I think are bigger implications because those will all of a sudden be real killers because they're a smaller sensor size. They're like roughly super 35 millimeter sensor size. So you could shoot a narrative project with them and, and you will have the depth of field to get your shots. And the footage really does look super gorgeous. And I've shot a bunch of projects on them and been very happy with what we've gotten. And once you combine that really nice, um, color science with the, uh, raw. Now what's interesting 
the GFX 100 and the Hasselblad and most other cameras use use a sensor called a Bayer array sensor, which means the little red, green, and blue pixels, or actually filters on the sensor because the individual pixels are colorless, uh, or sensors, sens- uh, sensory pixels, um, are laid out in what's called a Bayer pattern, and it's just a pattern of colors. The Fuji X line, uh, including the XT and the XH, uses Xtrans which means the raw data is different than the Bayer. And so, you know, like this is something that comes up all the time is like the debayering algorithm that you're using for red raw, the improvements in debayering, what debayering quality you're using. But we wouldn't talk about debayering if it was XH or XT. We would talk about demosaicing, right? Because it's a different pattern. It doesn't use the Bayer pattern. It uses a different mosaic. And I wonder if ProRes would support that mosaic or not. I honestly don't know enough about the engineering of ProRes RAW to know if RAW X-Trans mosaicing can be wrapped into ProRes RAW or if ProRes RAW only works with the Bayer pattern. Because Fuji, as at this point, seems very wedded to X-Trans for the color rendering benefits and I don't know if they would give X-Trans up just for RAW. So I honestly don't know if we would see ProRes RAW on the X-T4 and the X-H1 or X-H2 as much as I would love to see it. Well, I think it's probably time for us to move on to Ask No Film School. Okay. Donovan Wilson asks, can I use a news article as the basis of a screenplay? I found a news article and I'd like to create a screenplay from it. It's from 1907 in the New York Times. To me, it makes sense. I could write a script based on the news reporting, but New York Times says the article is not available to option. Do I really need permission to write a story based on the news? So first off, we're going to caveat this whole conversation by saying it is always worth it to talk to an intellectual property lawyer. Mm -hmm. However, aside from that, I'm going to say you can write about things that happened. You cannot write about people who are not famous in a way that invades their privacy. So that's where it gets complicated. However, this is all from 1907. So most of the people in this story are probably gone, passed passed away. And so you are probably pretty safe in writing about them, even in a way that maybe invades their privacy a little bit, and you're probably not going to get sued. Um, the general rule is Steamboat Willie uh, in terms of like public domain of things like this. So, like you know, a book like anybody can go make a Sherlock Holmes movie because they all came. All the Sherlock Holmes books came out in the 1890s, so Sherlock Holmes has now entered the public domain. You should be safe. You should be able to write an article about it. In addition. If it's a real thing that happened, like you can go write about the San Francisco earthquake. You can go write about, you know, and even on a much smaller scale, you can just go write about those things. And um, it sounds like this particular old 1907 article from the New York Times is probably more slice of life. The newspapers used to run a lot of that kind of stuff then. Um, But I think you should be reasonably safe. I err on the side. I'm, I'm with you. Charles, I I wouldn't let this stop someone's interest in a story um, or, or something that happened in the world. And I actually have a follow-up question for you because you mentioned at the beginning, what if you don't know, how does one find an IP lawyer to oh, talk to? All right, so here's my general advice on lawyers. 
And this is- They bill advice. by the hour. <laughs> oh, well, no, there's two kinds of lawyers. Well, no, there's two kinds of lawyers. This is actually a, a good lawyer conversation. There's two kinds of lawyers. There are by the hour lawyers and percentage of the deal lawyers. And you're going to need to use both in your filmmaking career. If you're really lucky, you're working, maybe you have one on retainer, but that's not always. Oh, yeah. I always forget about retainer because I've never actually reached the point where I had to keep one on retainer. So thank you for reminding me that there are three types of billing lawyers. There's retainer um, where you pay them a set fee regularly and then you can call them as much as you want. Um, A percentage takes a percentage of a given transaction. So I'm, you know, you're negotiating a big deal and they're going to get 10 or 15% or 5% depending upon what they're doing. You negotiate what their fee is, and then they do the deal, and they take their percentage, um, or they are hourly. Usually, intellectual property tends to be hourly because the transactions uh, are often spread out so long in time. You know what I mean? Like you might talk to an intellectual property lawyer now, but then you might not actually option the book for four years, or you might not actually, you know, like so many things are spread out like that. So a lot of intellectual property lawyers are going to be a. Um, uh, an area where you're going to want to pay hourly. Although you will every once in a while run into an intellectual property lawyer who's willing to consult with you overall on the entire project in exchange for a fee. So I've certainly, this hasn't happened to me, but I've had friends who are like, oh, I worked with a property lawyer and they agreed to do all the legal for the whole project for 5% of the budget. And so I could talk to them as much as I wanted in pre-production. And then when it came time to finally do uh, the movie, they did all the production legal and they took a fee. That is certainly a thing that exists, hasn't happened to me, has happened to people I know. Usually when I've talked to intellectual property people, it's been some sort of flat fee for a negotiation or an hourly of some sort. However, in general, the way you want to go about finding lawyers is actually – so here's the thing. It's probably changing a little bit. Uh, The advice I was about to give is very uh, problematic advice in that the advice I was about to give is – Ask around to everybody you know and ask them for their lawyer recommendations. The reason why it's problematic is because it tends to be um, discriminatory, right? Like when we talk about hiring, one of the problems with hiring, there's the famous J.J. Abrams anecdote where he was like looking Mm -hmm. for a second unit director. And he asked all his friends for recommendations and they gave him like 50 white dudes to look at. And he had to literally, he had to be like deliberate and be like, no, I would like to hire a woman of color as my second unit director. And he had to go looking and hunting. Um, So I think that there is something to be said for doing that. The reason why my advice on lawyers is usually you ask people, you know, is it general, it has treated me very well for 20 years now of asking around for people I know and whose lawyer they're working with. And then lawyers will do interviews um, you know, obviously, uh, someone will not do a two hour interview for a little intellectual property job, but like you can have a chat with them usually and get a sense of whether or not you feel like they're good listeners, whether or not they understand what you want to ask about. Um, the other thing I have done when looking for these kind of services, not with lawyers, but with other similar professional services is I've gone looking for people who blog on the subject I'm interested in. And if I read their blog, I might hire them. And I've actually done that a couple of times in the last couple of years where there's a subject I'm interested in. So I will deliberately read like, I will Google like uh, top, uh, actually, uh, I'm blah, not blah, blog, blah, blog, blah, blog. 
from Bob Blah Blah Law's blog. <laughs> or Bob Blah Law's intellectual property <laughs> law blog or something like that. Read the blog, see if you enjoy them, then get in touch. And I've hired a couple of people and had really good results there because, you know, everyone at this point knows blogging about something that you're good is good marketing. It usually shows that they're a person who is engaged and wants to be conversational, wants to be part of the thing. I bet we even have a couple of articles from intellectual property lawyers up on No Film School who have guest posted from us. I think we do. We do have, I was going to say, going back to an earlier point, this is a great question because it brings up so much. We do have posts about public domain, quite a few actually. Things that are new to the public domain, how you can utilize public domain stories or content or IP or footage. Um, So there's a lot on No Film School. You can honestly just search public domain and find quite a bit of details about all of that and how this particular news stories applies. Um, we do also have content about IP law and, and some of the IP things that you're mentioning. And I have some personal experience as well with it. I think you want to, like you said, find somebody who can help you out quickly, like go over in a couple of hours, maybe what you're looking at and, and dig into the copyright history and figuring out who's responsible or who's uh, who owns what. but. Here would be my other piece of advice. You can you can maybe reach out to either I mean this is 1907 I think it was so so it doesn't apply in this situation but in in many situations try reaching out to the publication to the author and see if there's an option on it meaning mm-hmm. if somebody has the option rights has optioned the rights to that piece of content. Um you could also talk to um, if you can't reach out to a writer or to someone from the publication, you could talk to somebody you know who might be a producer who would be interested in helping you figure that out. But then my other piece of advice is it's not the worst idea to go ahead and try and write it and put it together. And then Agreed. sometimes I don't generally buy into this view of the world, but if it's really good and people want to do it, Legally, pieces kind of magically fall together because anybody who's going to work with you on the script, who's excited about it, is going to quickly be like, okay, we have a lawyer at our production company because a lot of production companies do have lawyers on retainer and they'll figure out what the situation is um, if it's really going to go. Like if money is ever going to be made, then that's when it would start to matter. Um, Until money is being made, it really doesn't matter. You could write a spec about... um, you know, anything yeah. that exists that you don't have the copyright to, uh, and you could show it to people and you could get work off of that. And you don't have to worry about the fact that you don't have rights to it, except that maybe you could never make that specific thing. Um, but I've definitely, the way rights transfer and the history of contracts, it can get very complicated. So if you're talking about something that's maybe already been adapted or that there may be a living, descendant who owns rights, then you might have to like do some tracking down and it could get expensive and time consuming. Yeah. I didn't mean to scare anyone off with asking the IP lawyer question. <laughs> if someone's listening and saying, oh my gosh, now I can't do this. I, I don't think that's true. It's just something to keep in mind to your point, George, when money starts getting involved. I think that's when things start moving a little differently versus, oh, I'm making a short film, you know, or something, something that's related to the story to, to prove that I can, or, or to write a script to prove right. that you there's can. Two, or, uh, I think there's that's two fine. ways to approach it. 
and they're both kind of the same, really. One is just do it because you want to do it and it's going to be good and it'll take you somewhere. Or just do it because you want to do it because it'll be good. And when someone wants to make money off of it, they'll figure out the legal side. So like either way, you could just go ahead and do it and not yeah. worry yeah. too much about that unless you're worried about you personally, like putting it up on YouTube and generating dollars for clicks because then YouTube will pull it down. <laughs> and that's when it becomes an issue. Like otherwise, you know, like I like. There's all kinds of insurance and there's all kinds of legal things. There's something called errors and omissions insurance. And you could even get all the way to distribution on a project that you personally wrote that's a that's a completely original piece. And someone could come out of the woodwork and sue you once the piece is out there because they'll say, hey, that's my life story. You stole it. And that's why you have something called errors and omissions insurance. And those sorts of things and that side of stuff gets really complicated. So I would just caution against worrying too much about it until you're at that point in the process. If you're just at the creative point, go for it. All right. That was another week in COVID lockdown and another week on the No Film School podcast. Uh, I am Charles Hain. Uh, you can find me on the Twitter and the Instagram at Charles Hain. And you can check out uh, saltypirate.tv for my web series. This is Michelle De La Tour. I still believe chairs are good. I, <laughs> you can find me on the internet, on Twitter and at Instagram, M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R. I'm going to start doing a lot more photography soon. So I'm going to post more about that. That's been my quarantine hobby. I said this last week. I'll say it again. If you've found something interesting during your quarantine viewing time, we'd love to hear about it. Yes, I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Remember to email your questions at ask at nofilmschool.com um, and we will try to answer them and email your deep cuts as well. Head over to No Film School, check out all the stories we have up. There's some very exciting camera news. There are some big cameras being released in July. Head over to yes. No Film School and read all about them. Plus, uh, we have other cool stuff. There's always things happening and like, rate, comment, leave uh, and subscribe. And we look forward to hearing from you. <laughs>